Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 6 through 15 as we finish up our study and sermon series from 2 Thessalonians. And God is addressing us in this book to stand firm, to stand firm against false teaching, to stand firm against persecution, to stand firm against the false understanding of whether Jesus came again, to stand firm in the apostolic tradition and the gospel teaching, to stand firm in gospel cooperation, to stand firm in grace and peace that God gives, and now today to stand firm in unity. So hear God's word as he calls us to stand firm in unity from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we, didn't make our, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now that your Holy Spirit, whom you've poured out on us abundantly already, when you regenerated and renewed us in Christ, we pray that that Holy Spirit would now open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Incline our hearts to your word and not to material gain. Unite our hearts to fear your name, Lord. Satisfy us this morning with your covenant love, your steadfast love, your gospel goodness, and even the goodness of your commands, that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. So help us now as we think about this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. The Lord Jesus, one of his most famous commands, at least today in our culture, don't, be, don't judge so that you won't be judged. Non-Christians, if you're not a Christian and you're watching this, it's easy to think, and even right to think, why is the church so judgmental? Why are Christians so judgmental? Why doesn't the church just accept everyone? Why do they have to put some people out and keep some people in and say, no, you can't do this, and no, you can't do that, or you're not a Christian, or you're not good enough? Why is the church so judgmental, so discriminating, and so unable to accept everyone? 
The answer is, well, I'm not going to give a full answer right now, but to, to start to think about the answer to this question, unity is, you got to think about this, unity is under constant threat. Last week, we talked about how the church must stay united in cooperation as a group of churches, as, as a team of churches, really, for spreading the gospel. We need unity because division is always a threat. Well, division is the threat to unity. Our country's divisions are often highlighted every presidential election year, which we're very aware of right now in 2020. But the, the, the point is that groups love to, to stand firm together. That's what groups love to do. Groups love, love each other and want to honor each person specifically and uniquely in the group. We don't want everyone in the group conforming to the point where individuality is eliminated and everyone is, um, individuality and personality is erased and everyone is cookie cut into the same exact mold like robots. We don't want that. Nevertheless, there will always be some people in a group that will reject the core values of the group, testing the boundaries of the group and testing the principles of the group. There's the teenager who's devoted to using and selling drugs, endangering his parents and siblings. Wants to be united to his family, but puts his family in danger, testing the principles and, and boundaries of the family. There's the U.S. citizen who tries to overthrow the government and assassinate the president. He's a citizen. He's part of the country. But at the same time, he's trying to overthrow the nation, or at least the government. There's the gang member who once was devoted to, to um, gang banging and, and all of the activity of the gang, and then he falls in love and no longer has time for the gang or its activities. There's the political or social activist who changes convictions on a major issue like abortion, for or against, so-called gay marriage, for or against, racial reconciliation or caring for the poor, which causes the others in the camp to question whether they still belong in our group. To be part of a group identity means identifying with that group's identity. When one no longer identifies or commits to the group's core identity, then the question has to be asked, is one still part of the group or not? Those who defect from the group but still want to identify with the group weaken the unity of the group. If I still want to be a Laker fan but want to start cheering for other teams and maybe even cheer that the Lakers lose, you got to wonder, well, is he really part of our Laker fan group? And that's just sports. But we could do that about all kinds of things. Defection is the conscious abandonment of allegiance or duty, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Defection is conscious abandonment of allegiance or duty to a person, a cause, or a doctrine. And we as a church want to stand together. We want to stand from together. And here's the point, maybe the main idea. To stand together, we must declare defection. To stand together, we must declare defection. Those who defect from the group. Or we could say determined defection. How can we stand firm when those in our tribe abandon their allegiance to their Christian discipleship? How can we stand firm as a church when others in the church abandon their allegiance to Christian discipleship? If I had to give the main command of the passage, it's pretty clear here, and I'll show you in a second. Don't associate with those living irresponsibly. That's the main command. Don't associate with those living irresponsibly. It's a very specific defection here. Well, 
sort of specific. It's, it is sort of general. Don't associate with those living irresponsibly. The word in your CSB is idle, those who are idle. Don't associate with those living irresponsibly so that the church stands firm. Look at, look at the verses with me here just to see where the command is coming from. Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to, to the tradition received from us. There's a command. Keep away. Keep one's distance. Keep aloof from certain people. If you go to verse 14, he says, take note of that person. Don't associate with him. Don't associate with him, but warn him. So there's the command. Keep away. Keep distant from people. Now, before we meditate on this command and really the reasons for the command, that's, that's really the, the bulk of the sermon, let's pause here to look at verse 6 one more time because before you get the command, Paul says, we command you, brothers and sisters, and then he has this little phrase, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is good news. The good news is that Jesus gives us a command through Paul or Paul gives a command united to in the name of Jesus Christ. This is good news because in Jesus Christ, God is good to us. Apart from Jesus Christ, God is against us and not for us. So if we get a command in the name of Jesus, then we know it's for our good. Because all of God's commands are good, and we experience that goodness in the name of Jesus Christ. For now, let's notice, let's notice the fact that it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the beautiful name of our King. And this is the name, and in this name, our Lord Jesus Christ, in that phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ, we have the main message of Christianity, the gospel. Think about it. Lord. Jesus is Lord because he died on a cross and rose from the dead on the third day, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And he was declared Lord by the Holy Spirit in his resurrection. He is Lord over all. That means he has authority. He is master over everyone. Jesus is Lord of all, master of all. But his name is the name of our Lord Jesus. His name is Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? It means Yahweh saves. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. He came to save his people from their sins by his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. And it's the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ means, that's the same word as Messiah, which, which means he's the anointed one, the anointed king, prophet, priest, and king, but primarily the anointed king who came to fulfill the promises through King David, that he would be the king to really replace Adam as the king of the new humanity. Adam is the king in the sense of the old humanity. And Jesus is the head, or Adam's the head of the old humanity. Jesus as king, the Davidic king, is the head of the new humanity. All in Adam die because of sin. All in Christ live because of his obedience. So Jesus is the king. He's the head of the new humanity, and he's the king of God's eternal kingdom. So when we say Lord Jesus Christ, we're talking about the, the master of the world, Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins by his death and resurrection, and now he rules as king over God's people in God's place. So that is God's kingdom. And why is that good news? Because of the word, going back to chapter 3, verse 6, 
the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word our there is where the gospel goodness is. He's not just the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord Jesus Christ of everyone. But when he's our Lord Jesus Christ, then that means that he's ours, that we possess him and he possesses us, that he is our king and we are his people. Because before Christ came, before he's our Lord Jesus Christ, we are condemned in our sins. We are sinners condemned to die because we have rebelled against God and his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But through Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead, he can now become our Lord and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we repent from our sins and trust in him. So if you repent from your sins, and if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and treasure, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, and if you're willing to entrust yourself to him and submit to him as your Lord, he will save you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will unite himself to you like a husband unites to his wife, and the two will become one. And all of his righteousness becomes yours, not because you earn it, but because he gives it to you in unity. God is inviting you to unite yourself to Jesus if you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Call on Jesus to save you because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's good news. And this command here in this passage comes in that, in that overall structure of the fact that we are in Jesus Christ. Okay, so what's the command? Let's go back to the command now. The command is keep away from every brother or sister who is idle, and I'm saying who's living irresponsibly and does not live according to the tradition you receive from us. When it says who are idle, a better translation, here's the, the Greek dictionary, it says behave, it's, being idle is, or walking idly, living idly, is behaving irresponsibly, apparently without respect for the established custom or received instruction. So Greg Beale says, you could translate it, um, those who are living disorderly or disruptive. Not to reflect the proper order, that's disorderly, is insubordination to God and a disruption of the covenant community resulting in chaos. The opposite of peaceful unity. If we're going to stand in peaceful unity as a church, when one lives disorderly or disruptively, he is disrupting and causing chaos in the peaceful unity of the church. And that is due to insubordination to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, keep away from those who are living irresponsibly, living disorderly, living disruptively. What does that mean to live disruptively? We get a few clues as we continue in the verse. Look at verse six. The one who does not live according to the tradition received from us. So Paul has given a tradition by his words, and as we're going to see in, chapter, in verse 7 and on, by his life. By his life and his words, Paul has given a tradition. He has handed down a way of living to the people. And they, and some of the people, are rejecting it. They're not living according to the teaching, the commands, the instruction of who Jesus is and what he calls us to, and the lifestyle that Paul has modeled for them. In verse 14, we get another clue of what this is. It says, those who don't obey the instruction in this letter. So the commands of this letter, to stand from the apostolic tradition, to not be deceived by false letters. Keep away from those people. He says in verse 14, take note of that person and don't associate with him. There's the command. 
Don't associate with this person. Keep away from this person. Take note of this person. Point them out. Identify them by name. That person right there, that member of the church, is, is, um, is disorderly, disruptive, idly living, and we need to take note of them in order to disassociate from them, to separate from them. That's basically what we call church discipline, excommunication. To identify someone, to call them out, and for the church to identify the person and then say, we are no longer associating with this person. We are keeping away from this person. To stand together, we must declare defection. To stand together, we must declare defection. Now, why? Let's continue thinking about this in verse 14. Why should we do this? Well, for what purpose? Take note of that person, don't associate with him, so that he may be what? Look at verse 14. So that he may be ashamed. So that he may be ashamed. Because he's living irresponsibly, he's living disruptively, and he doesn't care. He's not embarrassed by it. He doesn't feel shame. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? They ate the fruit, and immediately they knew they were naked, but they didn't feel ashamed yet. And then when they heard the footsteps of God walking in the garden, what did they do? They ran, hid themselves, and sowed what? Fig leaves. Because they felt their shame. Actually, I'm thinking about it now. I'm not sure if they felt shame immediately or after they heard the footsteps. Maybe they sowed fig leaves right away. I don't remember. You, you could go back to Genesis 3 now. But certainly when they heard the footsteps of God, they ran and hid because they felt an extra sense of shame, whether it's initial or, or a heightened sense of shame. Here's the point. When God comes walking and you hear him and you sense his holiness, you feel shame. And so the church is to communicate to the members of the church who feel no shame in their sin, in their constant disruptive, disorderly lifestyle with refusing to repent, they ought to feel ashamed. And so he says, don't associate with them so they may, may be ashamed. That's one of the reasons we do excommunication. Not to self-righteously shame them, but we still have to shame them. Now, how shall we disassociate from them? Look at verse 15. We have one, one clue here. Don't consider him as an enemy. So don't shame him like you hate him, you're attacking him, you want to bring him down, you want to destroy his life. No, quite the opposite. You don't want to destroy his life. He's not an enemy. She's not an enemy. Don't consider him as an enemy. Even, this, even though you're disassociating with them, don't disassociate as with an enemy. Even though you're keeping away from them, don't keep away as, an, as with an enemy. But warn him as a what? Warn him as a brother. So you still got to do your, you still have to, you still have to disassociate. You still have to keep away, but do it with grief. Do it with, with heartbroke, with your heart broken, with pain. With mourning, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Do it in love. Do it with hope that they might come back the way you might have to oust a family member from the home. But doing it with love and grief, not with joy, as if you're defeating an enemy, but as a family member that you deeply care about. Warn him as a brother. Now, I need to clarify this just a little bit because it could be a little confusing. Didn't Jesus tell us that when we excommunicate someone, we're to let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector? In other words, to, to, to treat him like a non-Christian, like an unbeliever? 
But here he's saying warn him, quote, as a brother. Aren't brothers only those who are in the faith, those who we publicly affirm as Christians? That's true. Like, I will call you brother if, or sister if I think you're brother or sister in Christ. But if we excommunicate you, I won't refer to you as brother or sister. So how, do, how, does that, how does that cohere with Paul saying here, treat him as a brother? I don't think Paul is saying that you think of him as a brother or sister in Christ, as if you think of them as a Christian. I, think, I don't think he contradicts Jesus, in other words. In disassociating, we are withdrawing our public affirmation or declaration that this person is a Christian, that this person is a brother or sister in Christ. Now, they still might be, but we're withdrawing our affirmation. We're not saying they are anymore. We're saying they're no longer a member of Christ's church. But so then how does it fit here? Read, read verse 15 again. Warn him, and here's the key word, as a brother, as, like a brother. In other words, you have to let the word as have its full force. Paul tells Timothy to treat older men as fathers in 1 Timothy 5.1. Treat younger, treat older women as mothers. Treat younger sisters, uh, treat younger, yeah, younger women like sisters in all purity. So I'm going to treat the sisters in, my, in, in our church um, as sisters. They're, they are sisters in Christ, but I need to treat them like they're my biological sisters in all purity. Without sexual immorality, you wouldn't, I mean, just normally speaking, uh, most people are, um, are disgusted by incest. You wouldn't think about that, even if you struggle with sexual temptation and sexual immorality. It, it takes a real debased um, degree of, de- of depravity to... To, um, to have that towards your own biological sisters. And so Paul's saying, treat, your, treat the younger women in the church as your sisters, as your biological sisters. Now, that doesn't mean they are my biological sisters, right? But as they are, like you would. And that's the same thing here. That doesn't mean that this person is a brother in Christ, but you treat him as a brother, like as a family member, in love, as opposed to as an enemy. That's the point here. Warn him in love. Warn him with humility. Warn him with compassion. Don't warn him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. Not that you're still declaring that he is a brother in Christ, but warn him as a brother whom you love. I think it's contrasting with an enemy. All right, so let's apply this main command because my, my, my points are not commands. So there's very little application in my points. It's just really reasons why we're supposed to do this command. So let me apply it, and then we'll move on to um, the reasons why we should do this application. Okay, so if, if we're to keep away from those who are idle and living irresponsibly, if we're to take note of them, to disassociate from them, then what's the application? Let's hold each other accountable as members of the church. You have a membership directory. You got the members in the church, right? You got members in our church. Hold them accountable. Hold one another con- accountable to our confession of faith, which is in our directory, and our church covenant, which is also in our membership directory. Hold people accountable, and you will get a new one. We're going to print them after the members' meeting tonight. Practice meaningful membership and church discipline. Come to the members' meeting tonight. If you're going to hold people accountable, you need to come and take members in. If we transfer members out, you need to be here for those meetings. Practice meaningful membership. Don't just make it a thing we do, a a, a box to check off. It's a lifestyle of holding each other accountable. So pray for your heart to see and feel this command as good and not burdensome. We'll talk about that more later. If you're not a Christian, you might say, man, this is harsh. Why would I want to be a Christian? So that people can kick me out of a church. Like I said earlier, every group has an identity. And when people um, disassociate themselves 
from that identity and don't identify in that way, you either change your group identity or you, you declare defection from that identity. Let me tell you this as well if you're not a Christian. Your best friends are not your flatterers. Your, bre- your best friends are not those who flatter you and never tell you a harsh thing. Your best friends are those who do encourage you and do tell you about a lot of good things in your life, but they also tell you, they tell you the truth about your good, and they also tell you the truth about your sin. They speak the truth to you in love. Those are your best friends who tell you the truth. They don't just tell you only good things and, and inflate that because usually they're doing that to manipulate you. It's just like the, the king who wanted advice from the prophets and said, let's call for prophets before we go to war. Let's get their advice. And, and all the prophets said, you're going to win. You're going to win. And one of, the, one of the two kings were going to go to war together. And the other king said, um, let's go call for another prophet. You guys heard this story before. I said it a few weeks ago, but some of you might be watching this for the first time. Um, and, and he said, uh, let's call, don't you have a prophet of Yahweh? So that other prophet came and he told them the truth. You're going to die. You're going to die if you guys go to war. You're going to lose. But all the other prophets said you're going to win. Now, who's really loving? Now, eventually they did go and they did lose. And uh, the king did die. He did. Who was the prophet who was truly loving? The flatterer who just said, you're going to win. Good job. Just go. Or the one who spoke the truth in love? It's the one who spoke the truth in love. If you're not a Christian, you need friends around you who will speak the truth to you in love. Now, why should I, why should we actually do this? Why should we actually disassociate from other, other people? Why should we do this? We should do it for four reasons. And Paul gives us four reasons here. Look at verses 7 through 9. Look at verses 7 through 9. Because verse 7 says, go back to verse 7, it says this. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working day and night to not be a burden to you. So verse 7 says, you yourselves know how you should imitate us. The first reason why you should practice discipline and disassociate from people and declare defection is because you are to imitate Paul. And Paul worked. He was, look at verse 7. He was not irresponsible, it says, right? He says, um, we were not idle among you. We did not live disorderly or disruptive. We were not idle or irresponsible among you. Instead, what do they do? Verse 8, we didn't eat anyone's food free of charge becoming a burden. Instead, we labored, toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So Paul did not just eat their food free of charge. Instead, he labored, he toiled, he tried to work to contribute and not to become a burden to them. And because of that, Paul was an example to work hard, to be responsible, to take responsibility for yourself and for others, rather than to be irresponsible and make others take responsibility for you unnecessarily. Now, according to Acts 18, verses 3 through 5, Paul was a tent maker. And when he would go to a new town, when he went to Corinth, for example, he would work as a tent maker during the day, make money, and then preach the gospel at night, so to speak. He would make money so he doesn't have to take food from anyone, and then he'd start sharing the gospel with people. And then, in verse 5 of Acts 18, when his team would come, they'd, they'd collect money from other churches. When they would come and meet Paul... They would have the bread and the money that they need to provide for Paul. So then Paul would start preaching full time. So he'd, be, he'd work hard. He wouldn't ask the people he's sharing, because it's, it's a missionary context. There's no Christians there. 
As he's preaching, he's not going to ask them for money. He's just going to preach the gospel to them. And then when the others collect money from the other churches, they bring it to Paul. He stops working during the day, and he just preaches full time. And then he goes to a new town. He does, if, if his support's not with him, he just does tent making. Until the support comes, then he starts preaching full time. In other words, Paul was not lazy. Paul took responsibility for, for feeding himself and for feeding uh, and for, for not becoming a burden to others. And they did this intentionally. Verse 9 says this. It is not that we don't have the right to support. They do. You have the right to support from those. But we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. So they were very intentionally becoming an example. So that's the first reason. Why should we hold people re- accountable to be responsible and to take care of themselves? Because Paul gave us that example in the apostolic tradition. Secondly, because you're commanded to work. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. So the second reason why we should hold people accountable to work and to be responsible is because Paul commands us to. He commanded them when he was with them. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. In other words, personal responsibility is important. Poverty comes, and sometimes that's beyond our control, but our responsibility to work is important. It says, um, well, why, why are people poor? Why do people end up in poverty and homelessness? There's actually four reasons for it, or four factors that all press in at the same time. One is the sinners who are oppressing them. So sinners oppress. Then you have sinful systems or broken systems that press down. So that's a cultural pattern of life that presses down on those who are poor. So you have sinners sinning against them, systems pressing it on them as well. And then you have Satan, Satan and demons that are also pressing in on people to destroy them. And then lastly, you have their own personal sin. Okay, you got sinners pressing in on them, you got systems pressing down on them, you got Satan pressing in on them, and then you got their own sin and personal behavior, and all four of those factors cause someone to be poor. And Paul's not saying you could just eliminate Satan, or you could just eliminate sinful systems, or you could just eliminate sinners. What Paul is saying is you need to be willing to work. You need to take your, the, the personal behavior side of it, your sin, you need to take responsibility for your sin, and you need to be willing to work. If you're able-bodied, then you must be willing to work. Willingness to work is prerequisite for eating. Not working, but willingness to work. And willingness is shown by the effort being put forth to find a job. So if you don't have a job in our economy, you're not sinning by not having a job. But you might be sinning by not, you would be sinning if you're not willing to work. If you're not looking for a job, if you only look for a job one hour a week and you're saying, I don't have a job, that's why I can't. Well, if you don't have a job, then 40 hours a week, you should be what? Looking for a job. Willingness to work. If you're not willing to work, you should not eat, is what Paul's saying here. Not talking about sinful systems. Sometimes you can't get a job. Not talking about sinners oppressing you. Not talking about Satan. Uh, Those things are real, and we need to keep that in our mind. But Paul is holding Christians responsible to be willing to work. Now, for females in our culture today, that means that they too must work, or they can work. Those single moms and other women who are unable to work must come under the care of the church. And, the, and godly men who will provide for them as an, ex, like, as an exercise of their godly manhood. Now, Paul says in verse 12, he, he clarifies this command in verse 12. Look at verse 12. We command and exhort such people 
by the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the command to do what? To work quietly and provide for themselves. Work quietly and provide for yourself. Work quietly and provide for yourself. That's the command. Be willing to work. Don't eat if you're not willing to work and work quietly and provide for yourself. Now he's talking about working quietly because he's contrasting that with verse 11 and we'll get to verse 11 next. But let's just think a little bit more about work before we move on to the third reason why we are to stand firm by declaring defection. Work is good and we were made for it in fulfilling our God-given commission as humans. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That means that we are made to work. That's part of our God-given human commission. Rest is also necessary in life. So don't be a workaholic. God does call us to rest. And it's important that you rest. It's wise to rest one day a week. But rest is important. What we do in work, the third thing is, what we do in work is, is for the good of neighbors and our society and for providing for one's household. When you work and you're responsible for yourself, you're not only blessing yourself. You bless all of those you know and love who are around you. That is also true. Lastly, at least the last point here, all work is to be done to the Lord and not to men. That's what Colossians 3 says. Colossians chapter 3. You can just turn there. You can turn there if you want. Just right before 1 Thessalonians. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So do everything, whatever you do in your work, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Look at verse 22. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of the inheritance, an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. So be willing to work and work for Jesus. Work with thanksgiving. Work heartily for the Lord and not ultimately as people pleasers. Be willing to work, work quietly, provide for yourself. Take responsibility for your own provisions as you are able. Children, let me say something to you, children, kids, listen up. Learn to work happily now. Work hard now. Enjoy God in working now while you're a kid. Learn to worship God when you make your bed, when you wash the dishes, when you throw out the trash, when you sweep the floor, when you clear the table, when you do your homework, when you're in class learning. Work hard. Enjoy work. It will teach you to follow Jesus when you're older because that is the Christian lifestyle. The Christian lifestyle is working hard, working quietly, working for the Lord, and then resting, and then doing it again to, to glorify God and spread the gospel. Kids, you can work on... Um, on glorifying God and seeking first his kingdom now by working hard in school. Okay, so we have two reasons so far why we are to, um, to disassociate from the irresponsible. One, because you are to imitate, imitate Paul's example. Two, because you're commanded to work. Third, because you're responsible. The third reason why is because you are responsible for the irresponsible among you. You're responsible for your fellow church members. Now, go, go to verse 11. It says this, For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Paul says, We hear that there are some among you who are idle. They heard back that some members were irresponsible and idle. And that's probably due to the false teaching. Remember that they thought the second coming already happened? So they were really big, like, Jesus is coming. So they're like, Jesus is coming soon. There's no point in working. 
he's coming soon. What's the point of working? It's like, you know, when you're about to retire and you're like a month or two months away from retirement in the workplace and you're like, well, what's the point of doing some things? Cause I'm about to retire. And so people were idle and irresponsible because Jesus is coming soon or Jesus already came. What's the point? We already missed the second coming either way. They were being irresponsible because of their false thinking or false misapplication, misdirection of the second coming. Now notice they were not unbusy. They weren't busy working unto the Lord. It says um, they're not busy, but they're busy bodies. What does it mean to be a busy body? They're going around and occupying themselves with time wasters and meddling in other people's business. Greg Beale says, it's not those doing nothing, but those busy doing the wrong things. He says again, in, those, in Thessalonica, the, the disorderly people, are they, they are disorderly not merely by being lazy and not working, but also by being busy bodies, involving themselves in things they should not be spreading in their new false teaching, end quote. So they're busy in other people's business, busy learning other things, and like, oh, did you hear that Jesus already came? Did you see that other letter that Paul, that Paul wrote? And they're spreading around all these things, and they're busy about the wrong things. They're busy spreading rumors and spreading the newest ideas and distracting and dividing the church rather than working quietly, providing for themselves, and spreading the gospel. This can happen today through social media, can't it? Through the internet. Information is at our fingertips, literally at our fingertips, on our, on our smartphones. And in that, we have the temptation to be busybodies. What's the latest news here? What's the latest news there? Texting people and, 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 and contacting people on social media and email, just, hey, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? And you can distract. You can be so busy with nothing, with wasteful things. And worse, it could actually be false things, spreading false statements that are distracting and derailing the church from working quietly, providing bread, and gospelizing and discipling. That's happening even among Christians on social media today. What they should do instead of doing that, being busybodies, they should have learned to walk carefully and wisely, redeeming the time because the days are evil. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Make the, most use of, the best use of your time because the days are evil. God expects that when you're part of his people, you are responsible for yourself and for those in your church family. When Paul hears that there are some in your church family that are irresponsible, he expects you to take responsibility for them and hold them accountable to be responsible themselves. That's what he's saying here. Why should you disassociate? Because I hear that among you, there are some who are irresponsible. This is what, what it means to be part of a local church family. Local church, a local church is a group of people who are mutually committed or mutually responsible for each other's discipleship. Do you remember when Cain, this, the first human that was born, Adam and Eve's firstborn son, when he killed his brother and he buried him and was confronted? And they said, where's your brother? God said, where's your brother? And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. When you look at your fellow church members, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for them, even when they are irresponsible. To stand together, we must declare defection. Disassociate from those who are walking irresponsibly. So the third reason why is because you are responsible for the irresponsible among you. The fourth reason why we are to disassociate from the irresponsible is because you shouldn't be discouraged in doing good. Look at verse 13. 
But as for you, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in doing good. It's a good thing to disassociate, but that could be wearisome. That could be discouraging, right? Man, I don't want to do that. That's hard. I'm tired. I mean, if you have to, if you have to discipline member after member for, for months on end, that can get tiring. And you can get weary. There's so many people who are being irresponsible. There's a handful. And so many can sometimes be three, but that can feel like, that can be a lot for a church. That would be a lot for our church at a given time. So don't be discouraged in doing good. And it's good to hold people responsible and to disassociate. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might again be thinking what I said earlier. Why is the church so judgmental? Why doesn't the church just accept everyone? Well, if that's what you're thinking, let me, let me say that. First of all, it's a great question. Why is the church so judgmental? Why, why don't they just accept everyone? I agree with you. We shouldn't wrongly judge someone and treat them in a mean, condescending, hypocritical, self-righteous way. Paul tells us actually in this passage to warn him as a brother, not as a, not as a condescending judge, but as a brother. He calls Christians to live out what they believe and to hold others accountable to it. So he's saying, don't be a hypocrite. Don't just judge them. Be responsible yourself and then hold them responsible for their responsibilities. One basic problem when you say, why doesn't the church just accept everyone? Is the, one of the problems is that there's a category confusion. What do you mean by accept everyone? The word accept. That must be defined to really answer the question. If the question is, why don't you accept these unrepentant people as humans? Then I agree with your objection. They're still humans. Accept them as humans. If you say, if you call the church to accept them as neighbors who they should love, I say, yes, they are neighbors. I agree with you. Don't reject them as neighbors. Don't reject them as humans. Accept them. The church should be accepting because they are humans. They are neighbors. But if you say to me, or if I said to you, accept me as a co-owner of your checking account and let me spend the money however I want to. Accept me as a co-owner of all your possessions and all of your assets. You would be right to judge me as not the owner and to not accept me as the co-owner of all your assets. You're rejecting me. You're judging me. Now, if you say, PJ, I reject you as a human, I reject you as a neighbor, I'll be like, well, that, that's judgmentalism. But if you say, I reject you as a co-owner because you're not a co-owner of my assets. I judge you as not, as not a co-owner of my assets then you're right to reject me at that point. If I said, you're so judgmental, you're so exclusive, then I would not be calling for the truth because I'm not a co-owner of your assets. I wouldn't be calling for the truth. I would be calling for a self-centered agenda where I'm calling you to compromise the truth and compromise who you are and what you own for my sake. And that's wrong. In other words, we're not trying to judge someone as if we're better or as if we want to dehumanize others. We simply want to speak and communicate the truth in love. And someone who calls themselves a Christian and says, I follow Jesus, I'm part of this Christian church family, and yet they don't live or believe like Jesus calls them to live or believe, then we're just saying, that's just not true. You're not living or believing like you say you're living and believing. That's not judgmentalism as if we're better, that's just calling it how it is, like it is, but doing it in love. Doing it in love. We can't avoid judging. We can avoid judgmentalism. And we can run into, we can pursue judging rightly. Now some think it's not good, but mean to hold people accountable. But when you get discouraged and you say, you know what, if you're a member of this church and you're like, 
man, it's just too discouraging. I don't want to do it. It's too hard. It's hard to rebuke people. It's hard to call people. It's hard to hold people responsible. If you don't do it, uh, when you get discouraged and you don't do it, the professing Christian is deceived. They continue in their sin and they might actually not be Christian and go to hell. Secondly, the church is discouraged rather than encouraged in faithfully following Jesus because they see other people who are not following Jesus. Christ is misrepresented inside and outside the church. And the Bible is marginalized or relativized because it's like, I know the Bible says this, but we don't have to believe that part of it. Or we don't have to hold people accountable to that part of it. But Jesus told us to, obey, to teach people to obey everything he's commanded. It is a good, look, go back to verse 13. It says, don't grow weary in doing what? In doing good. It is good. It is good to disassociate from the defectors. It is good work to do that. It is good to hold people accountable in faithfulness. It is good, it's good for the irresponsible one because he might repent and be restored or he will at least be deceived on what one gospel church thinks of his claim to Christian discipleship. And that's also good for him, right? Either way, whether he's, he repents, which is great, that's what we want, or whether he just gets a clear word from people so that he might feel ashamed so that he might feel his sin, that's good too. It's not just good for the person that you're taking note of and disassociating from. It's good for the rest of the church, isn't it? Let me give you a few reasons why it's good for the rest of the church. It reminds the church to take their own sin seriously. It remind, secondly, it reminds the church to keep working hard for themselves and for one another and their neighbors. It reminds the church to, to be responsible for themselves. Thirdly, it guards the church from discouragement. It's discouraging when you see other members not working, not living faithfully for Christ, and it being tolerated. Fourth, discipline and disassociation guards the church, it guards the church culture to stand firm in faithfully following Jesus because what we do affects the, the culture of the church. Fourth, disassociation, or I'm sorry, fifth, disassociation clarifies to the neighbors what true Christianity is. And lastly, disassociation glorifies the goodness of God. God's goodness can be seen in the irresponsible one being corrected and the church being encouraged and the neighbors getting a clearer picture of what true Christianity is. You know, growing up, I didn't see this practice regularly in my church. And because of that, I've seen many join the church, profess Christ and fall away. Even more than that, I've seen in, in, a, in my growing up in a church a, a, a general stagnancy where the church was stagnant and was not serious as a general cultural thing, wasn't as serious in following Jesus and standing firm for him. Not to say they weren't true Christians, but the seriousness was, on, was certainly hindered and lowered because of this. Conversely, I've seen here at BBC through you, brothers and sisters, I've seen through this church family, through you, how you have sought to faithfully do good in holding each other responsible. I know we haven't been perfect, and there's room for us to grow as a church, but we have, I've seen Christ represented. I've seen a professing Christian have to face their living, their lifestyle squarely in the face, and I've seen the rest of the church sobered by church discipline. May God help us increasingly be faithful in this, in this endeavor in this responsibility. To stand together, we must declare defection. And God will use that to bring some people back. So to summarize, don't associate with members who don't repent of living irresponsibly. Why? Four reasons. 
because Paul gave you his example, because you're commanded to work, because you are responsible for the irresponsible among you, and because you shouldn't be discouraged in doing good. It is a good work. You know, in the book of Revelation, Jesus confronts and corrects the church at Pergamum, not because the whole church was holding a compromising teaching, but because only some of their members were holding compromising teaching. But Jesus rebuked not just those who were holding compromising teaching. He rebuked the whole church. He holds the whole church. He holds Bethany Baptist responsible, Bethany Baptist Church. He holds all of us responsible for each member to live responsibly. So what should we do? Here's my call to you. Meaningfully engage and challenge one another in your relationships meaningfully engage and challenge one another in your relationships. Get beyond the surface of what's going on in your life and get under that surface by asking, what do you think about what's going on in your life? How do you feel about what's going on in your life? What do you fear or what, what are your dreams in regards to what's going on in your life? Go beyond the surface of what's going on to what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're fearing, what they're dreaming of, that's when people really get vulnerable and share their lives. And practice engaging and asking and sharing from your own vulnerability and asking other people the same that you might meaningfully engage and challenge one another. We can't be a church that is able to hold each other responsible if we're not meaningfully engaging and having meaningful conversations. To stand together, we must declare defection. And in standing together and declaring defection, in disassociating faithfully as a brother with love and not as an enemy, may the Lord of peace give you peace always and in every way. Let's pray. Father, help us to disassociate faithfully and lovingly, to stand firm together as a church in declaring defection, out of love for those who, who defect, out of concern for them, and out of a concern for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a minute now to share our takeaways.